The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 433 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is human gene editing for individuals and their families and family caregivers. Now, just very quickly, some rules for medical treatment by physicians and other healthcare professionals. Basically, they want an answer to the question, um, when you, the patient, ask, what are you going to do with me and the information I give you, and what good will this do for me, and do I have the right to refuse? Now, if the patient is satisfied with the answer, this is something called informed consent. Now, rules for medical research by physicians, other healthcare professionals, and scientists and their staff engaged in research that involves living people, and that relies increasingly on informed Consent. And here's just one example. Clinical trials, which are required before new drugs, new medical devices, and new treatments, um, and the like, are licensed by the US FDA, Food and Drugs Administration. And recently, the FDA has been warning researchers that they need to be aware of all the complications of informed consent. Now, from our perspective, the first thing... The first thing that this episode is wanting to do is to bring some information to individuals and their families and family caregivers. What This explains just what human gene editing for individuals and their families and care, family caregivers actually is. Now, to discuss this, my guest is Dr. Marcy Darnowski. Marcy is Executive Director of the Center for Genetics and Society in the U.S., she holds a Ph.D. from the University of California. She communicates widely on the politics of human biotechnology, focusing on the implications for social justice and public interest. She's written for The Nation, Democracy, Harvard Law and Policy Review, and many, many other publications. She's appeared on numerous television, radio, and online news shows and has been interviewed for hundreds of articles and she's worked as an organizer and advocate in various environmental and progressive political movements. So welcome to the show, Marcy. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Great. First question for you. Please tell, tell us a little bit more about your career, especially as it relates to matters of human gene editing. Okay. Well, um, I've always been interested in the way that powerful new technologies shape our lives and our societies 
And even though that's the case in so many instances, and not just in biology, but in other areas as well, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> these powerful technologies are typically not subjected to the kind of uh, scrutiny that other social policies are. So, for example, the way we develop gene editing may have as much effect on our lives as a tax policy, an education policy, or who's prime minister or president. But we don't have the habits of democratic governance that we have for those other areas when it comes to powerful technologies. So that, I think, in general is how I got interested in um, genetic technologies. And I was teaching a class, oh, it's almost 20 years ago now, um, about uh, science and politics. And I came across the writings of um, a group of futurists. There were some scientists, including some very prominent ones, who thought that changing the genes that we pass on to our children and to future generations would be um, an exciting and dandy thing to do, despite the fact that some of them at least acknowledged that this was very likely to exacerbate inequality, to introduce new forms of discrimination into the world. And I was basically horrified by that and remain so to this date. Um, and that actually, that, um, that coming across that body of literature and that what really amounted to a campaign in the late 1990s by this group um, led to the establishment of the Center, Center for Genetics and Society and brings me to where I am today. Right. Now, next question for you. Please tell us about the, the work of the Center for Genetics and Society. Marcy? Okay, well, the Center for Genetics and Society is a nonprofit organization, a public interest organization. We're based in Berkeley, California. Uh, but uh, independent, not connected formally to the university, although we work with colleagues there. Um, we work to bring a social justice, human rights, and public interest perspective to the new human genetic and assisted reproductive technologies and practices that are be being developed. And we, one of the things we do is try to distinguish between those technologies and practices that are beneficial and to support those and to raise awareness about those that threaten to undermine uh, social equality and, um, and we try to uh, oppose those and show why they're bad. So um, we've been doing this for some 15 years now and we are working with a, a growing network of scholars across a range of disciplines, uh, with scientists, health professionals, legal experts, policy analysts, and also with um, advocates across a range of civil society sectors, including reproductive health rights and justice, racial justice, disability rights, environmentalism, and others. And with this, um, especially with the developments over the last short time, we, we really think that we are on the cusp of a what will amount to a social movement um, that's working to bring this social justice and human rights perspective to these matters. And we're hoping that we can help that movement come into being. Now, um, different type of question. Marcy, please tell us what human gene editing actually is. Marcy? Okay. Well, just a short, really quick sketch to begin, at least. 
Um, what gene editing, sometimes called genome editing, means is it really it involves uh, modifying uh, DNA that exists, and it could be in a microbe, plant, an animal, or in human beings. Human gene editing um, then involves inserting, replacing, or removing DNA within uh, human cells or the human body. And there are a number of gene editing techniques that have been developed in recent years that are more accurate, although not completely accurate, um, than older methods. Uh, the way that they work, the ones that are referred to as gene editing, um, is that they kind of function as what you might call molecular scissors. Um, and they also have an aspect of the system that can identify a particular place in the genome uh, to cut the DNA. So it's like a targeting mechanism to find a particular location in the genome and then a cutting mechanism. Um, the, the technique that's received the most publicity is called CRISPR. That's an acronym, C-R-I-S-P-R. And that was, um, it's something that was discovered. It's a naturally occurring system at its base and it was discovered in bacteria and that happened just about three years ago, and it's really taken the life sciences sector by storm. Now, just a quick additional sort of question about this. That sense of it taking, the CRISPR taking a huge influence over the way things are done, is, is that in itself a matter for concern for your center? Um, it is in a couple of respects. I mean, one is that the metaphor itself of gene editing, I think, is one that deserves looking at a little more closely. I think it does some good work in that it helps explain what's happening. Um, the analogy, of course, is to word processing. Um, but there's also something very misleading about calling this gene editing because it suggests that it's going to work as accurately, precisely, and under control of the author as the word processing software that we're all used to using now it does. And, and that's not the case. Um, if I make a change in a document on my computer, I don't expect that change to show up in another section of the manuscript maybe months later. And the biological equivalent of that could actually happen and does actually happen with CRISPR. So there are a lot of things that are yet to be worked out. And the speed with which the developments are happening and which, uh, with which the applications are being proposed and begun, um, I think just we, we just have to be careful that we're not moving faster than uh, safety and other social considerations would, should permit. Very good. Now, we've reached the time where we have to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Marcy Donofsky. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on Voice America's Health and Wellness and Variety channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Help, you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Marcy Donofsky. Our topic is human gene editing for individuals and their families and family caregivers. So, Marcy, let's talk about potential uses of human gene editing. Now, for First question then is, please explain important ways in which human gene editing could be used for medical treatment and the pros and cons of the ways. Marcy? Okay, well, I think there are many uses that are could be if they're safe uh, and carefully developed and, and tried out. Many uses that could be very beneficial. Some of these are even not directly on human tissues, but actually using gene editing um, to test uh, laboratory setups that can help find new drugs, new treatments, new approaches to, to treatments um, on a range of diseases. But to look at the way that uh, human gene edit is that gene editing is proposed to be used as a medical treatment, um, I think that we have to make a very very important distinction. And the first is uh, a, a kind of approach that again, could be very, very beneficial. Um, essentially, it's using gene editing to treat people who are sick, to treat patients, um, and could be called and has been called gene therapy. So um, this would be targeting particular uh, cells, tissues uh, of a person who's sick, and um, where the particular disease can be ameliorated by some genetic change. So for example, um, if uh, there are a variety of blood diseases, and in some of those, uh, there are uh, proposals um, and clinical trials actually going on already 
where the blood of the person who's sick is taken out of the, their bodies. Um, the genetic editing techniques are performed on the cells while they are outside the bodies. And uh, for example, an enzyme, a, a gene is added that produces an enzyme that, per, that performs the function that's needed. And then you can test, because it's outside the body, see if the genetic changes have been successful and put the person's blood back in them and hopefully then treat or even cure the disease. Um, and sometimes that's called ex vivo, or meaning outside the body. A little bit more um, challenging would be in vivo. That would mean not taking a tissue like blood out of the body, but actually putting the gene editing system directly into a person's body. An example here might be to um, treat someone who has cystic fibrosis. And in that case, uh, the trick would be to get the gene editing system into the person's lungs where it would insert the gene that produces the enzyme that's needed to clear the mucus from the, lung, from the lungs and hopefully um, significantly improve the person's symptoms of cystic fibrosis. So those kinds of gene therapy approaches, I think, are, are um, exciting. Um, I think we do have to be very, very careful on a couple of counts. One is just the, the sheer safety of it. Um, whenever you use a new um, medical treatment in a human being, uh, it has to be done in a carefully controlled way so that it can be tested, so that any adverse reactions can be spotted right away. And hopefully the person can be helped. And, hope, and then, we, of course, we wouldn't use that. That approach would not be used um, without refinement on others. And this right. is where the importance of informed consent also comes in. Now, I'm interrupted slightly because I want to take you to the next question, um, which is uh, to explain a new um, thought, at least for this episode. Please explain to us what a germline gene modification is and tell us about the position on its benefits and risks taken by the Center for Genetics and Society. Germline gene modification. Marcy? Right. So all the kinds of genetic editing interventions that I was just talking about um, are aimed at the uh, cells of a, of a patient, um, the somatic cells or the body cells. By contrast, germline gene modification doesn't target any existing person. It's not meant to you know, help treat or cure anybody. It's done on uh, early human embryos or gametes. And the idea is that genetic changes made in any of those cells would then be reflected in the resulting the child that would result if that genetically modified embryo were to be used to initiate a pregnancy. The resulting child would have these genetic changes in every cell of their bodies and not only that, but would pass those changes on to any future generations. And with current techniques, at least these are irreversible changes. So this is sometimes presented by people who are excited about the prospect of germline editing. They will say that this is a way to prevent the transmission of inherited disease. But here's a really important point. We don't need to be manipulating genes 
in order to prevent inherited disease being transmitted, being passed on to our children and future generations. That can already be done using existing techniques. In, in, in every case, you can have a healthy child if you're at risk of passing on um, uh, one of these terrible diseases. You can have a healthy child um, unaffected by that disease by using third-party eggs or sperm. Now, that child would not be related to one of the members of the couple, but if that was important to you, you could use a technique, an embryo screening technique known as pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And in almost every case, with a tiny number of exceptions, that would allow people at risk of passing on a genetic disease to have a child who is both unaffected and related to both members of the couple. So we actually argue that germline gene editing shouldn't be considered a medical treatment at all. Um, it provides a social benefit for that tiny number of people uh, who can't produce unaffected embryos and for whom having a fully genetically related child is very important. That is a benefit to them, but we consider that a social benefit rather than a medical benefit. And we have to ask then, are the social risks, which I'd like to you know, be able to address here, are the social risks of germline gene editing worth that social benefit to a very small number of people? Interesting and important question, Marcy. Now, I, next question then for you is this. Please explain important ways in which human gene editing and, if you, if you wish, bring in germline gene modification could be used for medical research and the pros and cons of each way. Marcy? Okay, well, let me actually follow on from what I was just saying and get in just a minute to that question. Um, so the reason that the Center for Genetics and Society is among the very many organizations and not only and people and also actually countries um, that think that germline modification is a terrible idea, the reason is because of the social risks that it entails. So I think you have to uh, envision here that if we were to allow it as a society, which many societies already have said they don't, but if we were to allow germline modifications for any reason at all, um, say for this tiny number of people who, couples who cannot produce unaffected embryos, we would be in a position in almost every country in the world where we would be opening the doors to any kind of germline modifications whatsoever. In, in other words, not just to prevent uh, the transmission of cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease, but also to allow parents to control the traits of their future children. And right now they could control things like um, a child who needs less sleep, a child who has either fast twitch or slow twitch muscles um, so that they could uh, have a better chance of uh, excelling at a certain kind of sport. And I think you could see that we're likely to get ourselves in a situation where you'd be opening the door to uh, commercial dynamics that would um, be pressuring people to modify their children, you know, to give them the best start in life or whatever. And even if the actual genetic change didn't correspond with, you know, greater intelligence or perfect pitch, even the thought that these were superior children, I think, would be uh, very dangerous socially and unacceptably so. So given that danger, should we still be doing germline editing on human embryos and gametes for research purposes? 
Well, I think there are. Um, there is an argument that says that there is important scientific knowledge to be gained by doing that kind of research. But I think that if we are to go that route, we have to be very, very sure that we adopt policies that will make that will not allow that will make it clear that initiating pregnancies with any modified embryos or gametes is off limits. That's a no-go zone. Right. Now, once again, it's time to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Averley, and my guest is Dr. Marcy Donofsky. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on Voice America's Health and Wellness and Variety channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's Doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Marcy Donofsky. Our topic is human gene editing for individuals and their families and family caregivers. Now, let's talk more, Marcy, please, about germline gene modification. So... What is the policy situation on human germline modification in influential countries around the world? In other words, the, the, the nations that have a lot to say, um, the nations that have policies, what, are the, what is the policy situation 
as you look across to these countries, what do you see? Marcy? Right. Well, actually, this was considered in many countries around the world in the late 1990s, and several dozen countries actually uh, adopted laws that prohibit human germline modification. And in addition, the Council of Europe um, promulgated, I guess is the word, uh, an international treaty that is called the Convention on Human Rights and Biomedicine, um, also sometimes called the Oviedo Convention. And that is a binding international agreement signed and ratified by many European countries that also prohibits human germline modification. So there are many parts of the world in which that's established policy. However, um, we don't have any federal law in the United States prohibiting human germline modification. We do have some agency rules. Um, the National Institutes of Health has said that it uh, will not fund any research um, on human germline modification. And the Food and Drug Administration has said that it doesn't want to consider human germline editing proposals, proposals to use it in clinical trials, whether that be privately funded or publicly funded. And then, in fact, there was a development last summer in the United States um, in which some Republican lawmakers inserted in that massive spending bill that our Congress passes every year, the trillion-plus dollar spending bill, uh, a rider was inserted that says that the FDA can't even consider any proposals for human germline modification. So, um, so in the U.S., that's the situation right now. Um, however, privately funded research could go forward, or state or research funded by the one of the fifty states, including California, where we have a, a, a publicly funded stem cell agency that is talking about whether they should uh, be willing to fund uh, proposals for research on human gene editing research on human embryos or gametes. Um, then in China, there are some similarities with the United States. Um, they're one of the big players here, and there are some national level agency or national level guidelines um, saying that human germline modification should not take place. Uh, but it's not really clear how much force those have. And in the United Kingdom is a really interesting case because there are a, quite a few scientists there who are very enthusiastic about moving forward with human germline modification, although its use in reproduction is illegal in that country. Now, in the UK, just last year, the parliament voted on a very narrow exception, which allows a very particular form of human germline modification that uses a completely different technique, not like gene editing at all, but human germline uh, modification per se in including using these gene editing techniques, is illegal in the UK. One of the interesting things is that um, at a big meeting that was held last December in Washington, D.C., and that was uh, uh, on human gene editing, it was called the International Summit on Human Gene Editing, and the co-hosts of that big meeting were the, the science academies of the United States, the United Kingdom, and China. And we thought it was striking that there was no hosting organization from any of the European countries or from the European region where uh, there is this established prohibition on human germline modification. And that was really, that seemed very unfortunate. Now, 
Let me just pursue this a little bit further. You've already made very clear that there are key differences in approaches. And I wonder now if you could just summarize for us the main differences in the positions on human germline modification um, of these influential countries. In other words, what do they disagree on or what do they differ on? Marcy? Well, the countries per se, that really, I would say the differences between those countries that have established laws um, which, uh, depending on how you read the laws, is um, in the 30s or low 40s of countries, and those countries that really don't address this issue in law, and that's the other countries of the world. Um, then, you know, within the countries, of course, whether what, no matter what their laws, there are there are differences um, in different circles, and what I've been struck by is that any Many of the groups where you might expect a, a more unified point of view, there really isn't. There's really a lot of difference. So maybe you know, on a number of issues, um, it seems uh, scientists kind of tend to band together. And when something becomes a political issue, when it escapes the uh, boundaries of the laboratory um, and becomes a society-wide issue, you often have scientists kind of. Um, oh, uh, not wanting to contradict each other and kind of joining forces to, to have a united front, that's just not the case on this. So there are many prominent scientists, including Nobel laureates, who believe that we should not, who believe as we do and all these other people in many countries do, that we should not be modifying the genes we pass on to future generations. And that's based both on safety concerns and, in many cases, on social concerns as well. Um, so that's among prominent scientists. Interestingly, among biotech industry figures and executives, there's also a lot of disagreement. So a number of companies have been formed as startups um, to try to uh, develop and market gene editing for gene therapy and several of those countries have actually issued formal statements saying that they're not going to touch the human germline. That's not what they want to do, and that's not what they think should be done. Um, likewise, among bioethicists, also among legal scholars, social scientists, public interest advocates, there are there are wide differences. And, and I think the I think it's fair to say that the majority of people are either definitely opposed or extremely wary about going in this direction. But there are also a few um, enthusiasts and advocates, who, some of whom are working very, very hard to overcome um, what they see as um, unwarranted obstacles to moving forward to you know, seize control of human evolution, as some of them would say, or enhance our offspring, enhance humanity, as, as others would say. So that's the situation. A lot of disagreement, a lot of different views. Yeah. yeah. Marcy, I'm going to make a statement, and it may not be correct, but it seems to me that um, the prospect of human germline modification has become controversial. Has it, in fact, become particularly controversial now? And if so, why? What's driving the controversy? Marcy? Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's interesting because it's not a brand new controversy the existence of these laws tells you that there have been discussions about this for many years. It's, it's decades, actually. 
Um, but what happened um, in the last few years is the advent of this new gene editing technology, um, especially the one that I mentioned earlier in the conversation called CRISPR or CRISPR-Cas9. And once the ease of use, the quickness, and the increased accuracy of that technique became known, people did start speculating about using it on uh, human embryos and using it to initiate pregnancies with mod- modified embryos. And then um, about around about a year ago, rumors started flying that uh, there were scientists who were doing this. Who were in their laboratories, they were using CRISPR to... Uh, alter the genes of human embryos. And then um, last, early last spring, uh, a research group at Sun Yat-sen University in China published a paper, um, actually in a fairly obscure journal, saying that they had tried this and they had used in their experiment leftover embryos from in vitro fertilization clinics that were uh, flawed. They were not viable and could never be used to initiate a pregnancy. They would just not develop. But they took those as their um, their test object and they used CRISPR on it. And actually what they found was a lot of problems. They had a lot of um, uh, what they called off-target mutations or, you know, the changes in places in the genome where they didn't mean for them to be changed. They had inaccurate edits. And so what they found was actually a very sobering message that we don't know how to use this tool. It's not safe by any means right now. But it set off a huge controversy. And quickly after the publication of that study, there were um, articles written in Nature and Science and other prominent science journals and uh, lots of discussion um, in many media outlets, in many scientific conferences, and then a, um, a kind of uh, landmark in that conversation, in that controversy, was this gene editing summit in December that I mentioned. And the National Academy of Science and Medicine in the United States is um, now uh, pursuing an additional aspect of its work on this issue, which is what they call a consensus study. So they, um, this committee is charged with writing a report about what they think about human germline modification. And they held a workshop a couple of weeks ago um, with a couple of pa- with several panels, one of which was a panel of patient advocates, which was, I think, particularly interesting because a lot of the um, enthusiasm and advocacy for moving forward with this is, 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 is uh, cites uh, patients who really want this to happen, but the patient advocates that they brought into this meeting were decidedly lukewarm. They weren't sure it was a good idea. So, um, so this is part of the ongoing deliberation, and this is where we're at right now. Very, very interesting. Thank you for that. Now, we're going to take the break again. This is Dr. Gordon Elderly, and my guest is Dr. Marcy Donofsky. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on Voice America's Health and Wellness and Variety Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharing the burden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. 
Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Marcy Donofsky. Our topic is human gene editing for individuals and their families and family caregivers. Marcy, now, let's please talk about improving understanding um, public understanding of human gene editing and human germline modification. So, first question to you is, what, what's your impression of how well North American would-be parents, family caregivers, understand human gene editing and human germline mo- modification? What's your impression? Marcy? Well, you know, this is a very new issue for most people, and I think that um, many are just just barely beginning to be aware of the fact that there's an issue here, the fact that there's a controversy here. And then I think, you know, it, it really requires wrapping your mind around what, the, what we've tried to talk about today. What does it actually mean to edit human genes? And what is the argument? What are the arguments about it? And I think stepping through the argument, you know, realizing, number one, it's not safe, um, at least right now, and perhaps never will be able to be made safe. Number two, it's not needed in the overwhelming majority of cases. It's not needed for what its claimed, it be, its claimed benefit is to prevent the transmission of inherited disease. And number three, it really poses these very dire 
societal risks that we don't need to take because it's not needed. But I think, you know, stepping through that argument, really making sure that you are comfortable with it takes um, some time and some work. And um, so I think that, you know, we have to ask those questions. And similarly about um, the other kind of gene editing for gene therapy, the kind that I, I think could be used in a very beneficial way. I think there's a lot of hard thinking to do about it. What counts as safe? What's safe enough? What kind of informed consent procedures and practices need to be put in place if you or your family member um, is in a situation where you would be offered participation in a clinical trial of an experimental gene therapy technique? What kinds of questions should you be asking so that you know that you're comfortable with the risks, whatever the given alternatives are? Um, So those are really important questions for individuals. And then on a social basis, I think for all kinds of gene editing, we have to ask questions about the opportunity costs, basically. Um, And I'm not sure, I think the answers, I think the answers will be very different if we're talking about gene therapy or germline editing, on the other hand. But we do need to ask, what are we not doing because we're putting money and talent into this area? What should our priorities be in terms of health care and public health and and medical research? Now, I'm just following this theme, but um, taking us in a slightly different direction. Uh, Marcy, what more would you like to see done to improve understanding of human gene editing and human germline modification on the part of would-be parents and family caregivers? Um, what, what, I'm perhaps going to say, what would you like to do yourself through your own organization? And what would you like to see done by others? Marcy? Well, uh, let me go back to that gene editing summit that I mentioned a couple times before. At the conclusion of that meeting, the committee that organized it released a statement And the statement said uh, a couple of things. It said that they all agreed that, and and felt there was wide agreement, that it would be irresponsible right now to proceed with any attempts to initiate a pregnancy um, using uh, a modified human embryo because of just safety concerns, for one thing. And for another thing, they said, it would be irresponsible to proceed unless and until there was what they called broad societal consensus about whether and if so how to move forward. Now, that's a pretty interesting statement, um, in part because I don't know, and I don't think anybody really knows what broad societal consensus means. But I think it's clear what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that some scientists, small groups of scientists um, and policymakers are going to make the decision for us because it's clear to everybody that this is um, not, this technology not only will literally reshape human beings, but it will also reshape societies. So I think that we have to insist that broad societal consensus has to include the idea that discussions should be uh, extended in time. We're not gonna solve this in a very quick time and that they have to be really broadly inclusive So in addition to the voices from the official European organizations and and, uh, European countries that that weren't present enough at the summit, I think we need to include in a very deliberate way and do a lot of work to do this. We have to include 
public, the pu- members of the public and, and, and all the organizations and groups into which the public is organized. So I'm thinking about, you know, briefings and town halls. I'm thinking about bringing in community groups and labor unions and religious organizations and public interest organizations from many sectors. I think, you know, people uh, have a, who have a stake in these um, issues very directly are, uh, include patient advocates and disability rights advocates, but so do reproductive rights and reproductive health and justice people and racial justice advocates, environmentalists, and many others. Um, so I think what we have now in front of us is a really uh, searching and thoughtful kind of deliberation that's broadly inclusive and extended in time. Now, I'm just going to add a little one in here, and that is the question of um, who comes to your meetings, so to speak, who are taking part in these discussions. Um, yes, there are many, many groups, uh, but there are also ordinary North Americans, and I mean that in no derogatory way. That is, people who live their lives, who meet healthcare challenges and the rest of it. How would you want to see them involved, or do you want to see them involved in your, I'm going to call them consultations? Marcy? Well, yes, to the extent possible. I think this is a really an issue for all of us, for everyone. Yeah. Um, and how to actually implement that, of course, is extremely challenging. And one of the things that's challenging about it is that it requires resources. We're a small organization, and do what, we do what we can, and we do work with a growing network of um, scholars and public interest advocates and others. Um, but to put on a 500-person meeting, like the one in December, the summit, um, of course, is, is quite expensive. And, you know, I think somebody's going to have to step up, whether that's governments or philanthropists or others, to make meetings of different kinds possible. Maybe there needs to be some big meetings in which, uh, instead of, like at the summit, there were, I don't know, 80, 85, 90% scientists, and then a smattering of social scientists and humanists and public interest advocates, maybe we need a meeting where that's reversed, or at least where there are more, um, more people who are not part of the immediately involved scientific work, uh, workforce um, to talk about this. And then I do think we need many town halls and briefings, and we need um, to be training people to know how to explain it to others. So it's, it's a big piece of work in front of us, and I think what, we will, what will actually happen is that what we're going to have to resist is the idea that uh, a small committee at the National Academies of Science in the U.S. and a small group of people in the U.K. Um, and a small group of people in China are going to be making these decisions for the rest of the world. That does not seem like the way to go. Right. Now, that leads me to my final question on this one. And, um, which is this, what more needs to be done by governments to improve information flow to parents, would-be parents, family and their family caregivers, researchers and the medical professions? In other words, improving the information flow, what should governments do? Marcy? Um, well, I, I don't know that I can speak for governments, but maybe one thing I can do is refer to 
um, an experience that the Canadian government, a project that the Canadian government undertook um, some time ago. This was in the 90s, and it was in preparation for legislation that was passed, but unfortunately never implemented, about um, human-assisted reproduction, so a related topic. And in that case, there was a significant allocation of funds, and it supported an effort to uh, involve a lot of people, as well as do a literature review that included um, included uh, not just biological and scientific literature, but social science and humanities literature as well. And uh, this was uh, under the auspices of what was called the Royal Commission on New Human Reproductive Technologies. And some of the consultation um, activities um, that I remember, because it really struck me when I heard about it, was that in this pre-internet time, uh, there were no, uh, phone numbers established so that people who were far away from urban centers or in their homes because, say, they were taking care of small children, they could register their opinions by calling uh, an 800 number on the telephone. There were many, many um, meetings held, briefings held, focus groups, town halls. There was a, a real effort to include First Nations people um, and other underrepresented populations. And, it, and that's what it takes. It really takes concerted work and outreach to uh, involve the citizenry. And I, I hope that uh, governments in some form will step up to that challenge here. Now, this is a, a little loaded after question, but you mentioned the Internet. Um, I think that there's, and you, you and I have discussed this, that bringing people the opportunity to share their experiences and make known what they think is now possible with the Internet um, in a way that's never been really possible before. Now, uh, I'm tempted, but I'm not going to ask you the question whether you agree or disagree with me, but I would just like to leave the point behind that Internet is a good word because we can use it for the kind of things that you've been talking about and that you've made so clear. So we've come, unfortunately, to to the end of this very powerful, very informative, and very insightful episode. So, Marcy, thank you. Um, and I wish you every success in the work you're doing, which is moving forward in some extraordinarily difficult areas in which there are no very obvious answers. So that's what I say thank you for, and it's I say thank you on behalf of all of us because what you're doing is vitally important. Now, I want to say thank you to our listeners. And if you have comments or questions to ask of Dr. Donofsky, here's my, e my email address to use. It's docg at familycaregiversunite, or one word, dot org. Send me an email and I'll pass it along to her. Now, also to our listeners, please join us for our next episode, Divorce When Children Live With Disabilities. Um, look forward to talking with you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being around. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 